how can you ensure that you will not miss a diagnosis of skin cancer in a person of color? How do you address fear of cancer recurrence? What are the latest recommendations on the management of hypothyroidism? Welcome to the second episode of the Clinical Update Podcast, Season 3. I'm Sangeeta Krishnan, a medical editor at MEMS Learning, and in the studio I have with me editor Pat Anderson and medical editor Dawn Liss Powell. For our guest interview section, in recognition of World Cancer Day earlier this month, I will interview Dr. Suzanne Crickshank on the topic of fear of cancer recurrence. Later, we will discuss three key points on the diagnosis and management of hypothyroidism. And now, Pat and Dawn will touch upon how skin cancer affects people with skin of color. Thanks, Sangeeta. At MIMS Learning, we've always had a lot of CPD around dermatology. It's one of our strengths. And as part of that, in collaboration with a consultant dermatologist called Dr. Sharon Belmo, we have a set of linked learning materials around dermatology for skin of colour. We referred to this briefly in season two, but I think it's important to revisit it as people from black, Asian, mixed or other ethnic groups make up 18% of the UK population. So there are 17 modules in our Skin of Colour learning plans and they cover a variety of conditions that are either more likely to affect skin of colour or that present differently in skin of colour compared to white skin. The idea was to fill a learning gap for many clinicians who haven't received specific training in this area. The modules have been very successful with the first Skin of Colour learning plan completed by 2,300 clinicians so far. So I wanted to talk about one of these modules, which is by Dr. Arif Aslam and concerns skin cancer in skin of colour. Interesting to be talking about skin cancer. My assumption is that skin cancer is something that predominantly affects people with paler skin and doesn't really occur in people of colour. Well, I'm not sure there's such an assumption among doctors, but there's definitely a problem where medical training has traditionally not included enough education on the way that skin cancer can present in skin of colour. And as Dr. Belmo has pointed out in a webinar, even the clinical images that are used in medical education often depict presentations in paler skin types. So Dr. Aslam highlights that although skin cancer is less common in skin of colour, a diagnosis of skin cancer in skin of colour is associated, unfortunately, with a disproportionately higher mortality. This is due to a variety of factors, but in part happens because of differences in clinical presentation and thus delayed diagnosis. Can you expand on how the clinical presentation is different? Sure. Um, Dr. Aslam's learning module talks about three types of skin cancer. You have squamous cell carcinoma or SCC, basal cell carcinoma or BCC and malignant melanoma. And where SCC is concerned, he says in people of colour, it's more likely to present on the lower legs and the anogenital region. And it's predominantly found in sites that are protected from the sun as opposed to sites that are exposed to the sun. And these sites have increased risk of metastasis. So Dr. Aslam says there's a difference in body sites, but he also says there's a difference in the appearance of lesions. So in skin of colour, SCC can appear as keratotic brown or black hyperpigmented plaques with thinner hyperpigmented papules often accompanying the primary lesion and the surrounding skin can have a mottled appearance. So this may or may not fit with your mental picture of how SCC generally presents. 
And you also need to be aware that SCC in skin of colour can present alongside other conditions such as discoid lupus erythematosus. Okay, what about the clinical presentation of BCC? Well, BCC may present on sun-exposed skin, just as it does on, on white skin, but it also may be found on non-sun-exposed sites. And it may have a different appearance, such as the presence of pigmentation. Pigmentation is present in 50% of BCCs in skin of colour, according to Dr Aslam. And he adds that BCCs in skin of colour are often misdiagnosed as seborrheic keratosis or malignant melanoma. So again, awareness of how the presentation may differ can help with diagnosis. Just what you mentioned there about BCC presenting sun-exposed skin. So that suggests that the sun or UV light is a risk factor for people of colour, just as it is in white people. But what about other risk factors? So, yes, that's a really important point. Dr Aslam says that UV exposure is a risk factor in skin of colour. But there's more to the picture because, for example, chronic scarring and inflammatory disease in skin of colour accounts for up to 40% of cases of SCC. And on top of that, the metastatic rate from such a chronic scarring process is also up to 40%. And that compares to only 4% when SCCs develop from UV light exposure in white skin. So there's a real difference there. And as mentioned, BCCs are, li are linked to sun exposure, but where melanoma is concerned, apparently the association with UV exposure is not quite so clear. And where malignant melanoma is concerned, Dr. Aslam highlights that this diagnosis is associated with a disproportionately increased mortality. So it's really important that clinicians have this possibility on their radar and aware of when they should be suspecting malignant mel melanoma in skin of colour. So Dr. Aslam says it's more likely to present on the lower extremities, the lips and the mucosal surfaces in people of colour. And acral lentiginous melanoma is significantly more common in skin of colour presenting as an irregular brown pigmented patch on the palmar, plantar, subungual and mucosal surfaces, with the sole of the foot being the most common re reported location. I mean, a missed or delayed diagnosis is never a good thing, but as we're talking about cancer, that could have really serious consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not mentioned in Dr. Aslan's module, but it's public knowledge that the musician Bob Marley died of acral lentiginous melanoma. And that's just one high profile example of what could be avoided with earlier detection and diagnosis. So please do have a look at the Skin Cancer in Skin of Colour module and the other Skin of Colour learning materials on MIMS Learning. You can get a CPD certificate for each of the modules and for the whole learning plan. Thank you both. That was very insightful. For our interview segment, I'm thrilled to interview Dr. Suzanne Cruikshank on the topic of fear of cancer recurrence. Today we have with us Dr. Suzanne Cruikshank, who is Strategic Lead for Applied Health Research at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust and Honorary Professor at the University of Stirling. Welcome, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to have you with Thank us you. today. So first, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests. I started my career working in the Edinburgh Rest Cancer Unit, running a chemotherapy unit, and that sort of triggered my interest around research, primarily around supportive care. So all research around supporting people 
with toxicities associated with treatment, the psychological impact of cancer diagnosis, and just really research looking at how we can help people recover after treatment. So I think my sort of exposure to surgery, chemotherapy, treatments, radiotherapy, my early career kind of set the precedence really for wanting to do research around supportive care interventions. We have a conference report about the fear of cancer recurrence that was based on your Mm -hmm. talk. So can you explain a little bit about what is fear of cancer recurrence and why it is so important? So I think early in my career when I was meeting cancer patients, sometimes they would contact me as a clinical nurse specialist and of lots of different reasons you know they had a lot of symptoms associated with their cancer treatment but often when you had that conversation with them they were actually worried or concerned that the cancer was going to come back and I think we hear a lot of um, statistics being banded about about survival outcomes we hear people talking about five-year survival outcomes 10-year survival outcomes But if you're a young woman in your 30s, 40s, getting breast cancer, these can be quite worrying because you think, well, actually, why do they only talk about five and 10 years survival outcomes? What happens after I'm 50 or after I'm 60? And I think increasingly we're recognising that cancer might be a physical disease, but also psychologically um, there are human factors that make us unable to stop worrying and being concerned about the future and what's going to happen next because that happens in our everyday life and fear of cancer recurrence is exactly that it's worry concern that your cancer is going to return and actually if we think about it it's quite a natural reaction to when you've got a cancer and the risk that your cancer might come back is a real risk and some people have that worry and they come to the clinic appointment and they can just brush it aside and get on with their life and periodically that pops up in their head. We have other people at the other end of the spectrum that it completely interferes with their quality of life to the point that they are ruminating and thinking about the cancer returning every day, many times during the day and find it very, very difficult to carry on with their life to work and things because they constantly have that fear that the cancer will return and when is it going to return because one of the difficulties with cancer is it's an unpredictable disease and so although in a clinical consultation we talk about this is the risk the percentage risk of your cancer coming back for many people in the back of their minds they often go away with thinking is my cancer actually going to return? Are those risks, is that 5% going to be me? Is that 50% going to be me? So this is really what fear of cancer recurrence is. And and people have it in a, it is a normal reaction, but in a spectrum that can become quite difficult for people to live with. I understand that having gone through cancer and a cancer diagnosis and the treatments itself would be quite traumatic how does it impact health service so i think often we we look in the health service about a treatment you know has a treatment worked or not but actually 
you know, there's so many factors that affect whether a treatment works or not for a person psychologically or emotionally. And what we see with the health service, and there's been quite a lot of research done now, is that often people will be accessing services because actually they want somebody to tell them that the cancer's not coming back or they want to seek support. And when they're speaking to health professionals or when they're being assessed or when they're being checked or when they're being part of a group, they feel much better because they get that reassurance from it. And there's a lot of evidence now that people who have moderate to severe levels of fear of cancer recurrence actually utilize health service resources more than somebody who hasn't got that fear and therefore we need to start asking the questions of people not just thinking well so and so has phoned the helpline four times in the last week and none of the things seemed that important when the health professional is assessing it but we have to look a little bit deeper and think well actually why have they phoned why was the first consultation they had not enough to reassure them? Is it actually there's something underlying? And we've asked them about their symptoms. We've asked them about their treatment. We've asked them about their medication. But have we asked them whether they're concerned about their cancer coming back? And who would you say is more likely to experience this level of fear and this level of dependence or anxiety yeah, because there's a very strong relationship with anxiety, not such a strong relationship with depression, but a very strong relationship with anxiety. What we found in our research is that we can't predict it. Obviously, there are factors where we think of somebody psychologically that might be more predisposed to anxiety or depression. They may have had a previous mental health diagnosis. They may have had significant events that happened in their own lives, um, maybe family bereavement or major changes in their own life. There might have been something about the pathway from their diagnosis, how they were diagnosed and some of the experiences they had through their treatment pathway, which has sort of slightly predisposed them to increased anxiety and maybe even fears. But what we found in our research was by just looking at somebody and just talking to somebody in a clinic couldn't tell you what they were maybe thinking deep down. And that's why we were, when we used our tool, we found that the levels of fear were actually much greater than a lot of science is maybe predicting. Interesting. So you say, you you know, when you look at someone, you really can't tell. So how might someone with, uh, with this fear present to a GP or a cancer nurse? Like, what might they be likely to say, for instance? So sometimes they might be contacting you quite regularly. And I guess it's about thinking about how you, how we assess somebody. And for some people, it's just acknowledging that they've got that fear. They may not need any, any great input, but it's actually just acknowledging that that is part of the recovery or the part of the reasons why they're contacting people. I think often we try to fix the problem 
somebody contacts a helpline or goes to the GP and they describe symptoms. And one of the difficulties is, is with a lot of cancer diagnosis and then subsequent treatment, people can have a lot of symptoms in their recovery, which can feel as if they're quite similar to symptoms they'd had before they were diagnosed. And equally, certainly in, for people with breast cancer, many people don't have any symptoms before. And therefore, when they're getting symptoms to the breast or they're getting symptoms with their arms or they're getting side effects of chemotherapy or immunotherapy, it's very difficult for them to understand whether that is to do with their cancer and a reason that the cancer is coming back or something that's quite a normal reaction. So I think one of the things is really important is when we're assessing people is actually we ask that simple question. Are you concerned? Are you worried? Are you fearful about your cancer coming back? Because that helps in the overall discussion with the patient rather than thinking, I'm going to talk to them about side effects. I'm going to talk to them about their drugs. But actually, I've not included any question that might reflect their psychological well-being. And this is often overlooked, would you say, by healthcare professionals, just a simple asking the patient, how are you feeling yeah. or are you afraid yeah. of the cancer? I think it's, it's one of those things when we've done some research with clinical nurse specialists in breast cancer, sometimes it's that there's, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, when you somebody's got a new diagnosis and they've been treated, it's trying not to feel negative about the outlook. And so for some health professionals, it feels like quite negative to be talking about fears of cancer recurrence. Secondly, I think that we we don't quite know how somebody's going to react. And so sometimes if we've got a time-limited clinic or a time-limited appointment, we worry that if we ask them about are they fearful or worried, will we be able to deal with what comes back at us? But I guess what we have to remember is that cancer recovery is a long-term process. It doesn't all happen in a 10-15 minute consultation. And if somebody raises concerns, it's about thinking about what's the next step. So quite often it's what's the next step for them. They've raised that they're really concerned. They'd like to talk about their fears. Do they need a referral to psychological services? Do they need a referral to the Maggie centers? They have psychologists there. Do they need to speak to a clinical nurse specialist? Or do you need to bring them back to the clinic and give them a longer appointment? So it's it's not that everything needs to happen at that time point. It's about trying to give that opening for people to talk about it. Once you talk to the person and establish that they have this fear, what are the next steps? I think often as health professionals, there's a lot we can do ourselves. I think sometimes when we're talking about psychological interventions, we think of it as, as there's always got to be some action that creates a resolution. Whereas a lot of the work that we've been doing around cognitive behavioural therapy is really opening up those opportunities for somebody to talk and then assessing what level of support they need. And that's why the tools that we 
been using are four simple questions. Because if you ask most people with cancer, they will say to you, I'm worried that the cancer will come back. But it's actually understanding what level somebody is concerned. If it's just a, yes, I am worried, but I don't think about it all the time. I'm thinking about it today because I'm in at the clinic with you. Then obviously just a discussion with the health professional is sufficient. But if you use the questions and you realize that actually this person has significant anxiety and fears, then you have to look at what's the next step in the referral pathway. And maybe the next step is to look at giving them some additional support. And it's only really a small percentage that have really, really extreme levels of fear of recurrence that you would probably need to refer on to psychological services. So it's just getting that balance, really. It's having that first opening for them and then understanding what extent it's impacting on them and if it has been the underlying reason why they've come to see you. And another thing you mentioned earlier is that the use of appropriate language is really important around these patients and what would you say constitutes this problematic language? We interviewed a patient once and they said to her it was like the elephant in the room and the problematic language is not using any language at all about recurrence and trying to avoid it. I mean, a lot of people say to us they don't like words like battling, um, fighting, these type of words, because actually when you have psychological fears of your cancer recurring, it doesn't matter how much you don't want that cancer to return. Sometimes you need some help. And actually, if we use language which is about battling, with something that somebody doesn't have any control over, it can be very, very difficult when people want to step out and ask for help because they feel that, oh, you know, I should be fighting it, I should be... But actually, sometimes people just need a little bit of help. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you were involved in the research that developed this questionnaire that you'd mentioned. Can you tell us if there's any more research that's planned in this area? So one of the things that we developed was this sort of mini after C intervention where we assess for, use the four question tool to assess for levels of fear. And we're really looking at a sort of stepped care approach where people with moderate levels, we offer them a telephone intervention. And this telephone intervention is a 30 minute CBT telephone intervention, which is delivered by specialist nurses. And what we want to be able to do now is to actually put our training, we're actually planning to put the training for the CBT intervention online so that more people can do it. And it's not exclusively needs to be delivered by a specialist nurse. It could be delivered by a doctor. It could be delivered by an allied health professional. But what's important is that they have the appropriate training because it's not just having a conversation with the person, it's actually having a very focused conversation around their fears of cancer recurrence and taking them through a process that enables them to look at how they can develop coping skills to actually help them 
deal with it when they do feel these um, emotions. So I think one of the things is the training. We're going to make it more widely available so it can be used in further studies. We're also hoping to translate it into most of the work we've done has been in the field of breast cancer, but we're now looking at it in younger people with lymphoma, testicular cancer, sarcoma, and also in colorectal cancer, just to see whether the intervention can be translated. Because fear of cancer recurrence isn't exclusive to any one tumour group. It's just that quite often different tumour groups have different outcomes, and therefore that can create different levels of fears. I was actually going to ask you about that because the research that you've done seemed to have focused on breast cancer, but that's uh, it would depend on the prognosis of each type of tumor. It is because this, I mean, because breast cancer can recur any time up to twenty years after the twenty years plus after the diagnosis. That fear is kind of carried over a long period of time sometimes, and. And whereas other cancers, they talk about cure earlier on or other cancers that are very high risk of early recurrences. So it is very, very different. But what we've found is that making the opportunity for somebody to verbalise that they have fears or concerns is really important in the consultation. Because what we find is that a lot of the time we want to be quite positive with people. And so we focus on, well, if this treatment, there's something else or there's this or that, but actually enabling people that opportunity just to talk about how they feel about it um, often is enough to really help them feel that, you know, I've got this relationship now that I can talk about when I'm, I'm frightened because that's okay to bring up in the clinic or with my um, GP. And finally, I, I want to ask, uh, would you like to talk about someone who's been an inspiration to you in this area or of your work? So I was, so I did my PhD looking at the needs of women at follow-up clinics with breast cancer. And I used this questionnaire and one of the questions on it was, uh, are you afraid that your cancer will come back and overwhelmingly it was the number one concern of all the participants in the study and it wasn't something I was particularly looking at with the study but it was something that they were overall concerned so I looked around to see who was researching in this area and that's when I came across Professor Jerry Humphreys who was who was Professor of Psychology at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. So I dropped him an email and said, you know, this is what the findings were. I, and he said, come over and see me. And we've worked together ever since. He's now an emeritus professor at St Andrews because he's retired. But we've worked together really successfully over the last nine or ten years on grants and I think I find him an inspiration because he's he's just so generous in having helped me establish a research in this area 
I've learned a lot from him and I, I hope he's learned from me as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for joining me, Suzanne. Hi, I'm Emma Bauer, editor of the website GP Online and host of the Talking General Practice podcast. If you're interested in what's going on in primary care across the UK, do come and check out our podcast. Talking General Practice is out every Friday and includes discussions about the key issues and news stories affecting general practice and interviews with GP leaders as well as inspiring GPs and others who are making a difference to patient care. Just search Talking General Practice wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen. Thanks very much for that interesting interview, Sangeeta. Now, in our three key points section, we'll be talking about the management of hypothyroidism. This is a common problem, of course, affecting more women than it does men, and GPs are very familiar with it. However, there are issues around management, and one of these is the use of leothyronine, or T3. So we have three key points to give you from a webinar module on this topic. And in this module, jointly provided by the British Thyroid Association and the British Thyroid Foundation... Consultant endocrinologists Professor Simon Pierce and Dr Nicola Zamet discuss a consensus statement about the use of T3 in hypothyroidism. So this statement was jointly produced by two professional associations, the Society for Endocrinology and the British Thyroid Association, and it aims to address uncertainty for clinicians around T3 prescribing. And of note, the patient-led British Thyroid Foundation was also involved in developing the statement. So, Sangeeta, what's our first key point? The first key point is that this consensus statement confirms that most patients with hypothyroidism should be treated with levothyroxine alone and that a diagnosis of primary hypothyroidism is substantiated, that is, with a test showing TSH of over 10 milliunits per liter before considering moving on for consideration of T3 treatment. Another thing to consider before a trial of T3 is to exclude comorbidities that could be causing the persistent symptoms. For example, celiac disease, oestrogen deficiency, long COVID and mood disturbances can all be factors in persistent symptoms. And the third key point is that the consensus statement says T3 should only be initiated in secondary care by consultant endocrinologists for treatment of hypothyroidism and should only be prescribed if no alternative intervention or medicine is clinically appropriate or available for the patient. There are lots more details discussed in this webinar and it's been extremely popular amongst our learners with over 200 completing it in the first month alone. So I highly recommend watching it and seeing if it answers your questions on this topic. Thanks for listening in. Don't forget to check the description where you will find links to CPD modules relevant to the topics that we've discussed. See you next time.